This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Who am I? That's a question that many of us would have asked ourselves at some point in our lives. But how do we get to the bottom of it? How do we begin to think about answering this question? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. Joining me on the show today is Sandy Clark. He's a licensed counsellor and he has a column on the star called Sunny Side Up. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Thanks for having me back on the show. I want to start this conversation by asking you, Sandy, who you are. What does your name mean to you? And are you at a place in life right now where you can confidently say you know who you are? It's always a pleasure to start with the light questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, 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 the question about being sort of confident in, in who I am, um, it's an interesting question because it, it, it sort of implies a state of fixed uh, self or a, a fixed sense of self. And right. um, I think where I am confident in myself is having the acceptance that being who you are, being who I am, is a fluid thing, you know, is, is constantly evolving. And um, one of the best descriptions I ever heard about the, the, the self as a human being came from an English monk called Ajahn Giazzaro. And he said that, you know, um, human, human beings are verbs. Um, we're constantly evolving, constantly adapting, experimenting and, and, and changing. And I think if you can get to a place where you're okay with that, where you're not sort of trying to find some kind of fixed sense of who you are, then it makes for a much more interesting and content life, I think. Right. So you talk about the fluidity of it all. How does our sense of self develop over time? Well, I, I think our sense of self is primarily shaped by our interactions with, uh, first of all, our parents and other caregivers during childhood, right? So um, how you uh, grew up in terms of your environment, your upbringing, how people treat you and respond to you is really important. Um, so we start to develop a sense of self because what happens in childhood is how your parents communicate with you and treat you, you sort of learn to adapt to their expectations and their preferences, um, which might not be in accordance with how you see yourself or how you feel yourself to be, but it's more of a seeking your parents' approval um, type situation. Right. Um, so depending on how your parents are, whether they're nurturing, supportive, or maybe if they're critical and they maybe push you a bit too much, your initial sense of self will develop from that. And then as we grow older, our sense of self becomes more complex and influenced by various factors, including our experiences, our relationships, uh, cultural background and all that stuff. Um, and adolescence is certainly a, a critical time for our sense of self as we explore our identity and being in the world, you know, what's our role in the world? Where do we fit in the group? Where, where do we fit in the grand scheme of things? Um, so we're starting to build hopefully a more stable sense of self uh, during that time. Again, assuming there's been a healthy development in, in, in earlier years. And then as we sort of grow older, um, our sense of self continues to develop throughout our lives. Um, as we encounter new experiences and challenges that, that shape our understanding of, of who we are. Right. 
Um, before I started talking to people on a microphone um, for a living, I, I used to be a film critic. I used to write. And one of the interesting things that I learned over the years, or, or just one method, right, is that uh, when we are, we are trying to, when we are analyzing a film, I'm looking at the characters. One way I like to approach um, sort of looking and, and analyzing whether the, there's a, the, the character is well-defined in the film um, is to see whether I can describe the character without talking about what job the person is doing, what the person's name is, what the person looks like. If we can sort of describe the character um, in more ways than that, then perhaps it's a well-written character. Would you mm-hmm. say that looking at you know, this, this topic, this idea of understanding the sense of self, could, could we look at it from that same sort of angle? Like, what are we trying to really understand here? Well, it's an interesting point that you raise because um, I'm sure you've attended networking events. Mm-hmm. And many of your listeners will have done the same. And the first question you're asked is, you know, what do you do? Right. And, and straight away, people are, are trying to sort of place you in this sort of social structure or, you know, th- th- then they'll use your response to sort of get a sense from their perspective who you are, right? right. So if someone says, you know, I'm an investment banker or I, 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 I'm I a doctor or I'm a lawyer, um, straight away you've got a sort of paradigm or a, a set of ideas of, of what this person is, right? So they're probably um, well-educated. Um, they're probably, uh, you know, uh, sharp in terms of the way that they think. Uh, they're probably uh, detail-oriented. Uh, so we have all these kind of ideas from labels of, you know, your job, your your uh, appearance and so on. Uh, we create this kind of sense of self from our perspective on somebody else, right? But it's an interesting point that you raise. So when you strip all of that away, what's left? Right. Um, who are you without your roles? You know, who are you without your certificates? If you had to describe yourself by not referring to your job or your education or your likes and dislikes, what would you have left? And from a Buddhist perspective, for example, um, there's there's this idea of the five aggregates of the self. Right. Um, and the, so the, in the, the, the Buddhist text, the Buddha describes um, you know, things like form and feelings, our perceptions, um, our consciousness. Um, and he talks about how these are just kind of conditions that come together, uh, that there are just neutral aspects of human existence, but they don't define our identity. There is no core self in that sense. And so he teaches that individuality should be understood in terms of a combination of phenomena that form the physical and mental continuum of an individual life, right? So there is no um, uh, sort of fixed self in in, in that sense. Right. Is it important to know or to be able to answer this question, who am I? Uh, I think there's there's two ways to look at that. Mm. So I think that there is an importance uh, to know who who am I, because mm. it helps us to navigate the world and make decisions that align with our values and goals, right? So, right. Um, so you need to have a sense of your principles, your beliefs, your outlook on life. Uh, it, it gives you a sense of groundedness and, and purpose in terms of, you know, this is what I stand for. This is what I believe. This is what I'm all about, right? And having that 
clear sense of self can also um, help us form a more meaningful relationship with others um, as we can, you know, better communicate our needs and desires and also understand theirs, right? So if we can get a sort of understanding um, of, of their sense of self, who they are to us and what they mean to us. But again, coming back to this point that it's essential to recognise that our sense of self isn't fixed and it might change over time as we encounter new experiences and, and challenges, right? So even things like values and principles, they, they're not fixed. They, they can change over time as well. As you grow older, as you gain new experience, um, as you become open to uh, fresh perspectives, uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff that informs who we are and helps us to grow and develop as individuals. So I would say that it's, it's, it's good to have a sort of general sense of who we are. Um, but to allow for the flexibility enough that we can uh, accept that, look, you know, we aren't fixed and, and life isn't fixed and rigid. And that if we can be kind of open to new experiences and curious about uh, different perspectives, then that's what's going to help us kind of add to our knowledge, understanding of ourselves and of other people as well. Since you brought up personal beliefs and values, Sandy, how important are values when it comes to understanding your sense of self and also constructing, um, you know, one's identity? I think from, from the point of view that values give you a direction in life. Mm. So, um, for example, in, in, in one of the therapy approaches that I practice called acceptance and commitment therapy, one of the, one of the core components of that is to look at, you know, uh, discovering your values you know what's what's important to you in life who's important to you in life um because that's going to give you a direction on how to be and the thing about values is unlike goals values can never be completed right you can never finish a value so for example let's say you you want to be someone who's more loving or someone who contributes to society or someone who's playful or someone who's creative right having this kind of sense of the values that are important to your life uh, on a personal level, it gives you more of an idea of how you can you, you can sort of create the kind of life you want to live, right? Um, so, and, and again, these can change over time, but they just give you a sense of direction, like this is how I want my life to be. Uh, and those are entirely up to you to decide, right? Um, and again, th those values will help to sort of create a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Because if you don't have a sense of what's important to you, then the, the danger is that you'll kind of just sort of coast and, and drift without any real kind of aim uh, or, or any kind of sense of how you want to be in the world. Right. Um, I also want to talk about culture. How does mm -hmm. culture and social context influence our self-perception and shape our identity? It's an interesting question, and I remember some years ago um, having a conversation with a with an old guy back home, and <laughs> we got onto the, the subject of um, patriotism. Right. And uh, he wasn't for patriotism at all, and, and we were sort of just going back and forth. And, and he made the point that, look, if, if I grew up in Bosnia, or if, I, if I was born in Macedonia or, you know, Germany or the States or wherever, you know, that, that would just be a matter of chance. So wherever you're born it, you know it, it's it's not why would you be attached to the country that was right. his view right um, but when we look at culture and, and certainly a social context um, these these play a significant role in shaping our 
self-perception and identity, right? Um, certainly in Malaysia, there's a strong national identity. In the UK, there's a strong national identity. We saw that with the recent coronation of King Charles III. Um, people rally around this idea of, of what your culture, what your um, national values mean to you. And I think, you know, our culture, cultural values and background influence our beliefs and values and behaviours. And they shape, again, they shape our sense of self, right? So, um, and, and they also inform uh, how we grow up in the family, how we um, develop friendships, how we interact with our community. Um, and, you know, so having... So having a sense of our culture, uh, our social context, and um, we might come to identify more strongly with specific social categories based on on those interactions that we have with family, friends, and the wider community. Um, and of course, within culture, uh, discrimination and oppression exists as well. Based on social categories, um, can also significantly impact uh, our self perception uh, and our identity. Also, just closer to home, it, it depends on on the sort of family environment that you mm. grew up in as well. So, if that's if, if if national identity and cultural values aren't really practiced in the home, aren't given so much importance, um, or you've had some kind of experience where that's become a negative influence uh, in in your upbringing or as you're you're growing older, um, then then that's something that can that can certainly impact how you see that. Um, but but it's it's interesting how we then sort of shape our identity based on those kind of considerations, right? So, um, so for example, the, the coronation of King King Charles the the third mm-hmm. that 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 sort of split the nation in a sense because there were some people who uh, were were kind of critical of of that, right? Um, but there was also people there were also people who uh, really buy into this national identity and, and, and sense of value, British values, right? Because it gives you a sense of belonging and it gives you a sense of um, being part of a sort of social fabric and, and that means something to you. Um, so I, I suppose it depends, again, what's your personal meaning that you choose to bring to life? Um, you know, and maybe on the one hand, it can be argued that to be completely independent and free from um, cultural or, or social context might give you a bit more um, sort of liberation and freedom. But on the other hand, it can also mean that you you don't have a kind of sense of who you are because you're not tied to, to these considerations. Right. I think that's very interesting. On the show with me today is Sandy Clark, licensed counsellor. After a break, I ask him how important are values when it comes to understanding one's identity. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Sandy Clark. He's a licensed counsellor and we're talking about understanding oneself. So Sandy, can you discuss then the role of self-reflection in shaping uh, our understanding of who we are? Self-reflection is, is I think, essential mm-hmm. uh, in shaping our understanding of who we are and it, it helps us to examine our thoughts and, and feelings and beliefs more closely. Uh, it, it hopefully pre- prevents us from living life on autopilot. Uh, you know, for example, you might hold the view that, uh, you, you know, everybody has the same 24 hours in a day. So therefore, you should be able to make of life what you choose, right? And maybe you're coming from a position where you're able to do that because you have enough resources, you have enough 
um, freedoms and, and support networks and so on. Um, but if you, if you hold to that sort of uh, that belief, let's say that everybody has equal opportunity, everybody has equal um, resources and, 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 and such like, um, if you stop and reflect and say, well, does everybody have the same, uh, you know, opportunities and resources and support systems, you know, that I do? Um, hmm, well, maybe probably not, right? Right. I mean, you know, absolutely maybe I'm more not. Advantage than, right. than someone else. So, right. so therefore, you can maybe start to develop a sense of um, empathy, a sense of curiosity, a sense of. Um, wanting to learn more about people who are different to yourself. So by reflecting on our experiences and interactions with others, we can gain a deeper understanding of our values and, and beliefs, which can in turn um, lead us to think about other people's experiences and how they see the world. Um, and, and so self-reflection can be a useful tool in, in asking ourselves, okay, I hold these various positions or beliefs. To what extent are they true for me? And conversely, to what extent might that be different from somebody else or a different group and so on? And where are they coming from? And so it can help to sort of foster this wider understanding that just because we see the world in a certain way doesn't mean to say that everybody else experiences and sees the world in that same manner. Right. And what about self-acceptance and self-esteem? Because, you know, you can do a lot of self-reflection and and come up with, you know, you know, I hate my body, I, I hate these aspects about me and that aspects about me and things like that. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, what what role do self-acceptance and self-esteem play in developing a healthy sense of self? So self-acceptance and self-esteem are, are two slightly different things. So self-esteem sort of relates to feeling or how we feel about ourselves and our abilities um, and, and, and to what extent do we deserve love and respect, right? So right. Um, so that might come certainly from external validation. So let's say, for example, a child um, uh, gets an A grade in an assignment. So the parents are going to obviously lavish praise perhaps mm-hmm. on the kid because they, they scored well. So, but that, that self-esteem is predicated on the fact that you perform well uh, in the exam. Um, but if they score a C or they fail, does that then mean that the kid is is a worse person because of that? So mm. is their self-worth from the parent's perspective or is, is, is that kid's worth from the parent's perspective based on whether they get an A or a C grade? Or is the kid just worthy for the fact that they are who they are, right? Which ties into this sense of self-acceptance, which would relate to... Uh, recognizing and accepting all aspects of ourselves, including our strengths and weaknesses, successes and failures, um, pleasant, unpleasant emotions, right? We take that 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 entirety of who we are and we can kind of accept ourselves um, in terms of, look, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have strengths and weaknesses, limitations, um, triumphs and trials and so on. And if you can get to a point where you can accept that that's going to be a part of your life throughout your life, right, is, is going to be sort of peaks and troughs and everything in between, then you're probably going to have a, a much more healthier sense of self. Whereas if, you're, if your sense of self-worth is based on self-esteem, i.e. how you perform, how you um, achieve or don't, then that's going to be probably a lot more volatile because you're going to be constantly up and down. 
uh, depending on how you perform. I mean, I know some people who are who do base their worth on how much they earn, how many certificates they have, um, how much they they are seen to be of a high social status. Ironically, some of these people are not the happiest when they, you know, when you're in conversation with them. Um, because they, they they see themselves as having to work for their worth, right? Um, so there, there's not such a a healthy sense of self in, in that respect. Whereas if someone who has self acceptance, which is to say that, look, you know, I'll try my best. Sometimes I'll do well. Sometimes I won't. I'll have good days, off days, um, and that's okay. If you can get to a point where you can accept that, um, then you're going to have a more sort of stable, healthier sense of self. Right. And speaking about unhealthy sense of self, right, is this why, you know, like uh, some people say we shouldn't, you know, attach our self-worth to our jobs because then it becomes solely external, like you said, right? And so if I'm getting a promotion, that means I'm a great, like I'm doing, uh, I'm an awesome job, I'm an awesome person, I'm very smart, I'm very cool and, and so on and so forth. But let's say if suddenly I get fired or if I get retrenched, for example, um, you know, and things like that, or, or, you know, if this year I didn't get a promotion or I got reprimanded by my boss and so on and so forth, I couldn't close the sales. And then suddenly I'm like this useless person and, uh, you know, I, I'm not good enough, you know, and, and that can translate even to to you, to your personal life and how you you carry that emotions with you. Um, am I uh, on the on the right track here in terms of understanding why why it's important to have self acceptance and a healthy sense of self? Nobody, when you um, when they come to attend your funeral, will care what job you had or <laughs> how much you were earning or what kind of watch that you wore. Um, they'll talk about the kind of person you were and and the qualities that you have and. But we are kind of within a society that that, that, that praises the, this attachment to external stuff like jobs and promotions, and 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 if you get passed over, then that means you're you know just a lousy worker or, or whatever. Um, again, coming back to um, Ajahn Chiasaro, the the Buddhist monk, he has this wonderful quote which says that just become just because someone praises you doesn't mean you're a better person and just because someone criticizes you doesn't make you any worse than, than who you are right so um so th- this kind of external stuff is it, you know there's a lot of luck involved certainly there's this hard work and all that stuff but certainly in some companies if you sit still long enough you're going to get promoted right so <laughs> uh, or if enough people leave and so on so there's so many factors that go into right. your life circumstances that, that aren't related to necessarily who you are as a person and so um you know if you look at some of the work of, of um, existential philosophers such as um Soren Kierkegaard or John Paul Sartre um, they'll make the the, the the claim that look life is ultimately absurd right there's so many factors that go into your life circumstance it's difficult to explain everything that's happening that's going on um so you might as well just kind of uh you know enjoy the ride as it were uh, and, and don't take yourself too seriously in the sense that if you're getting the promotion or not, if you lose the job or not, um, you know, chances are that's not, it's not everything to do with you, right? Um, it, it doesn't really make any kind of re- reflection on your worth as a person. And uh, recently, uh, one of the sort of existential 
philosophers who's still alive. Um, uh, her name is Annie van Ders, and she's quite well known in the sort of existential field. And she made the point that she used to get annoyed when people plagiarized her work <laughs> and didn't credit her and all this kind of stuff. But now that she's getting older, she realizes that none of that stuff really matters so much. What counts is the fact that she's contributed something to the world, that she's given something of value to people, that she's kind of um, made something of her life in the sense that she's contributed, that she's helped other people. That's the important part. Whether someone is, I mean, I'm not encouraging plagiar plagiarism, but, <laughs> but but whether somebody is using your work or, you know, they've got more money than you or they have a better job, quote unquote, none of that matters in the end. What matters is how you see yourself in terms of uh, your values and how you've lived your life through those values. And so how do you break out of that mindset? Because like you said, um, we live in a society um, where our job is seen as like our primary sort of um, identifying markers. When you go out, and it's not just work networking events, right? Because if you're going for a work networking event, it makes sense for everybody to just talk about their, their job titles and whatnot. But if you're going to just, uh, or even on a date, right? You, you match with someone on Tinder these days. And the first question you tend to ask or the first few questions is, what do you do for a living? What's your job? That's such a, a, a thing that people um, hold very close to um, to their identities in in um, whether it's in Asian societies, but I think in many parts of the world um, as well. Um, how do does one break out of that sort of cycle or that mindset? I think a good first step is just to become aware of um, where whatever expectations you hold of yourself. Right. So a good question to start to ask yourself is where do those expectations come from? Are, are, are those really mine? Is that something I subscribe to? Or is this something that's been sort of, you know, um, sort of instilled in me? Uh, and even just that small awareness of realizing that much of this stuff comes from somebody else, right? Like, for example, some, someone might say to you, it's important to be ambitious. It's important to be successful. It's important to um, earn a lot of money. And if you look at it from their perspective, then maybe from their life, life, life perspective and outlook that, that is important to them, right? But who's to say that's important to you, right? So um, so you might come across someone who's unambitious as long as they earn enough money to, to get by, to look after themselves, their family, if they choose to have one. Um, you know, who are we to judge, right? So so I think to, to, to really reflect on, okay, uh, these expectations that I have of myself, there's an there's a, a American psychologist, um, Quite famous in, in the field of psychotherapy, he uh, developed a, uh, a method called REBT, which the, the acronym uh, escapes me. <laughs> what, it, what it means, I think it's rational emotive behavioral therapy. Right, quite a mouthful. Um, <laughs> but his name was Albert Ellis. Right, and Ellis had this idea of um, you should stop shooting yourself, or you should stop musting yourself. Right. Um, so it's this idea that if you think I should be a certain way, I should this kind of um, uh, desire or ambition, or I must be a certain way, I must get to this milestone by the age of 30. He would sort of encourage people to let go of that kind of stuff because that's that's expectations that are coming from somewhere else. It's not you. If you want that stuff, then that's great. That's you know more power to you. 
But if you're if you're feeling like that's not your thing, then just to be aware that those stories, those expectations, those um, uh, sort of assessments are coming from somewhere outside yourself. They're not yours. You don't own those. Those are being instilled into you by other people. And if that doesn't resonate with you, then you don't have to hold on to them. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, when we talk about this idea of a sense of self, our identity, um, people are very complex beings, right? Um, like you um, talked about how, you know, this, this whole sense of self is very fluid. It changes over time. But people themselves have sort of, um, you know, layers to them. I'm wondering how important is intersectionality when trying to understand oneself? Um, maybe just for the benefit of your listeners, mm-hmm. do you fancy giving intersectionality a definition? So intersectionality is basically this this understanding or this framework of thinking um, that highlights that there are many factors or aspects that make up who a person is. So in this this term is often used in in political discourse in when we're talking about human rights uh, and so on and so forth it's this understanding that for example um in a society let's say um you know men have far more privilege in society or power in society than women right that's that broad statement is correct but it's also intersectionality make you understand that a poor woman someone who comes from an underprivileged background is much, much lower on the, on the, on the ladder than a, a woman who is born in, in a wealthy family, for example, right? Or if you are an Indian, you are a racial minority in this country, you are a marginalized group, but there is a difference between an Indian man and an Indian woman, the kind of challenges that each face. There's a difference between the challenges that Indians who are upper middle class face compared to Indians who are, um, you know, working in plantations, um, people who are come from very, very underprivileged B40 backgrounds, for example. So intersectionality is understanding that there are different political and social factors that make you who you are. Yeah, and, and I think it's really important when we're trying to understand ourselves um, and in relation to our environment and, and wider community and, and mm-hmm. you know, country and so on. Um you know, to recognize that our, our identity is shaped by, as you mentioned, multiple social categories, so such as race, gender, uh, sexuality, that intersect and interact with each other, right? Mm-hmm. And by recognizing how those categories intersect, we can better understand our experiences and how they've shaped our sense of self, right? And especially when it comes to things like um, racism and oppression within society. And I think <clears throat> what intersectionality does, if, if we think about it to any at length, it again helps us to recognize how our experiences might differ from those of others and, and develop that understanding for people whose experiences might differ from ours. Um, and it might sound a bit ideal, but if we think more in, in those terms, we can maybe develop a more nuanced and complex understanding of, of others and, and work toward hopefully creating a more equitable society. Because certainly somebody like me who, um, you know, compared to, to other people, might have a lot more privilege, right? And I don't think that the argument is that, you know, people shouldn't have that privilege. I think that the argument would be that more people should be accessing those privileges and that things like race and gender, sexuality, um, uh, ability in terms of, you know, physical ability, none of that stuff should be barriers to being able to access opportunities and privileges. 
Um, but unfortunately, uh, where we kind of find in society sort of oppression based on uh, those kind of, um, you know, social constructs and contexts, uh, you know, that's that's going to heavily impact someone's sense of self and sense of worth, right? Because, um, for example, traditionally, men have been seen to be more important, quote unquote, than women. Right. You know, go, going back and maybe, like, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of uh, 20th century kind of thing. Right. Um, I mean, we've made a lot of progress, um, but there's still more work to be done, right? Absolutely. So it, it, it's not like, you know, everybody is seen as equal or on a level playing field. And again, this comes back to this idea that everybody has the same opportunity. Everybody has the same 24 hours in a day. No, they don't. Uh, so we have to sort of, kind of look at that and question it and and think to ourselves right how can we work in a in a way that provides people more access that provides people more opportunity to the kind of privileges that some people take for granted absolutely um earlier we were talking about you know reflection the importance of reflection um, I want to ask a very practical question because, you know, when you reflect on your values or, you know, something um, you have recommended many times is um, journaling, right? Um, should you be writing down these values that speak truest to yourself right now? Let's say you're trying to figure out who you are. So you're writing down values. Should I write values that are truest to myself or values that I wish I had, aspirational values? Because I think this is sort of a trap that people tend to fall into even when taking personality tests and whatnot, right? Yeah, 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 precisely, spot on. And that can be a whole episode on its own. So, I mean, I'll give you an example from my own life, right? So Mm -hmm. if I was to look at something like the MBTI, which is a a, a sort of um, dubious... (laughs) personality assessment that, that that puts people into one of 16 different categories, right? Um, but if, if people take it often enough, sometimes that can fluctuate. So for example, um, <clears throat> when I take the MBTI, I have a, you know, this, this um, outcome that I'm um, introverted, intuitive. I, um, I, I, I think a lot and I, I, uh, what's the other one? INTJ. Right. So there's, there's the judgment, right? So INTJ, that's the that's my kind of uh, personality according to this test, right? Um, <clears throat> so again, that, that could lend itself to you having a fixed sense of who you are, right? So for the mm-hmm. longest time, for example, I would tell myself that I'm not really sociable. I don't really like to do a lot of kind of sociable activities. I, I don't really like to explore much. I'm quite happy where I am. Um, but over the last couple of years, I've made a, a real effort to sort of become more sociable because I realize that I enjoy it under a particular context, right? So instead of so in, instead of having this image in mind that I had previously, that every time I have to socialize, it's with like 20 people, it's an allowed environment, and it, it necessarily has to involve like so many activities, right? So, you know, I got to a point where I thought, well, hang on a minute, I can still socialize and be sociable, but not necessarily within that definition. You know, I can hang out with a couple of friends. We can go to a quiet place. We can enjoy some activities, you know. So, but if I'd stuck with that sort of um, fixed sense of self, I would never have thought to myself, right, I need to be more sociable. In fact, it was a family member of mine who said to me, you need to be more sociable. (laughs) uh, (laughs) It seems to have been a curse because the last couple of years, it's really kind of snowballed. But so, so yeah, you're right that you can you can have that sense of writing down your values in terms of 
how you see yourself now. But you can also have this kind of aspirational sense of how you would like to be, right? The, even the values can be fluid, they can change, they can evolve over time. So you can create yourself. Um, John Paul Sartre had this idea, this kind of um, really um, you know, radical idea in his book, um, Being and Nothingness. And he essentially says that, look, you can create yourself. There is no inherent human nature. There is no inherent, inherent sort of fixed sense of, of who you are. Um, you can, through your choices and actions and decisions, create um, a sort of evolving sense of self. You can, you can basically be a blank canvas. And if you're, if you're needing to change that canvas for another and sort of redesign who you are, <laughs> then you can, you can do that. that. That's perfectly fine. So for him, the, um, your appearance, the way you are, the way you express yourself at any given point in time, that is yourself that it can be kind of fluid and flexible and changing over time. So growing up all, all my life, um, I liked watching debate competitions. I like watching storytelling con- uh, competitions and, and things like that. But I've always saw myself or perhaps I was someone who is very shy. I wasn't the one that the, the most outspoken one in my group of friends. I had people in my group of friends who were um, known as the debaters and, and whatnot. Um, and whereas I would just um, go, even taking an oral exam um, in, in school, I would, you know, hide my face behind a paper just to, to, to deliver the speech. You know, I, I couldn't just go go in front of everyone and just speak. Um, this happened until I was 17 years old. When I was 18, nothing dramatic happened in the few months per se. But what happened was I went into a different setting um, where nobody recognized or most people didn't recognize who I was. It was a new setting, new peers, new teachers, and so on and so forth. And on the first day of class, I remember there was a situation and then the teacher was like, oh, why don't you just go in front and debate? And... I just did it. I was very nervous on the inside, but I just said, okay, I'm just going to do it. And then, you know, people clapped and and so on and so forth. It went well and and whatnot. And then people in that setting started to see me as like, oh, you know, uh, they assumed that I had been someone who gives speech and debate and all of that, even in the years prior, but I hadn't. And I sort of, since that point, have just become or slowly become someone who's very comfortable with public speaking. I'm wondering what could have sort of, you know, caused that sort of transition. Well, as you were talking about your story, which is really quite interesting and illuminating in a, in a really um, important way, in that um, there was kind of parallels between your story and mine growing mm-hmm. up, because I was sort of the same, because I started in journalism and, and broadcasting as well. Right. Um, and th- that was that became a sort of conscious decision because I was aware that I was really introverted and still am. <laughs> um, but to the point where, like you say, you know, you'd hide behind everybody else and, and not really sort of put yourself out there. And I think what I realized for myself, and, and, and maybe this might be valuable to, to, to listeners, uh, for them to consider uh, in their own story, is that it's helpful to sort of put yourself in a situation where sometimes you kind of challenge that sense of self because when you're hanging around people who know you or who, who they, they think they know who you are, they kind of reinforce that, right? So right. here's um, Dashran who um, hides himself away. He doesn't put himself out there. He's quite shy. So 
when we're relating to other people in that sense, other people help us to form our sense of who we are just as much as as, as we kind of contribute to that sense as well, right? So mm -hmm. the fact that you were able to take yourself out of that situation and into a, a completely new situation, it's almost like you can reinvent, reinvent yourself and then people accept that, right? Because right. you're not in that old environment where people say, um, oh, that's not like you. Or why would you want to do that? That's not something that you enjoy or that's not right. something that you'd be good at, right? Um, which is why I, I think it's really good if people can. And, and this is something, again, I've started to do for myself in the last couple of years, is to try and surround yourself with people who will sort of challenge you in the right ways and make allowance for who you are and then who you can be, right? So now the, the people I sort of spend most time with um, they, they don't say stuff like, well, that's not like you or, you know, Sandy's this kind of person and, and that's just how he is. There's a recognition that, well, here are some of his traits and here's kind of how he is generally. But if I try something or if I, you know, suggest something um, that's quote unquote outside of my character, um, then they just accept that, you know, they just like, okay, sure. Yeah, let's go for it. Um, and it kind of gives me permission and it sounds as though you had this through your experience. Mm -hmm that permission to reinvent yourself, that permission to sort of take a step in a new direction. And again, it's not like you lose yourself wholesale, right? It's not like you change into a completely different character, right. but it just informs you and it just helps you to sort of broaden and expand who you are. But to me, your environment and the people you surround yourself really have an important contribution to how that goes. I think that's very fascinating. All right, Sandy, before we wrap this conversation up, um, you're someone who reads a lot of books on these uh, topics. Um, you cite a lot of books in your writing. Um, you know, is there a book that you recommend people reading, and and you know some key lessons you learn from it when it comes to understanding your sense of self? Yeah, sure. So the, the, there's two I would recommend um, just quickly. The first would be a book by the American social psychologist called uh, Jonathan Haidt, and his book is called The Righteous Mind, and he looks at how we develop um, moral judgments and how we apply that to ourselves and to others. Uh, it's a really interesting book that I just uh, reread recently. Um, but one book I would highly recommend people to read uh, is Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, which is a brilliant book in terms of how we um, judge ourselves and other people, right? So Gladwell argues that we often make assumptions about people based on their appearance or behavior, um, which can lead to misunderstandings and, and severe misjudgments, right? And our assumptions about people and ourselves can be influenced by stereotypes and biases. So he has this quote in the book that says, don't look at the stranger and jump to conclusions or don't look, at, don't look to other people and make conclusions. Instead, look at their world, look at where they're coming from, have that open mind to consider their perspective, but also to consider your own perspective, right? So when you uh, mentioned earlier, people who are defined by perhaps expectations or achievements, or they see themselves as worthless because they didn't get the job promotion, be open and curious about, you know, other perspectives. So maybe you didn't get the promotion because just the boss had a favorite, right? That, that happened not right. to be you. You could be competent, you could be capable, but it just happened to be that they just liked somebody else, right? There's so many different ways that can influence our life circumstance. So talking to strangers really delves into how we make judgments about other people and ourselves and how we so often get that wrong. And I think that ties into how we see ourselves. And it 
comes through quite a lot for us in the comparison game, right? So if you can get to a place where you can sort of let go of the comparison to others, then that's going to help you to foster a much healthier sense of self as well because you're not comparing yourself to other people's highlights, what they show, because um, that's all you see, right? Whereas for yourself, you get to understand so much more of the context of your own life. So we, we tend to compare ourselves unfavorably to other people just by what they show and what we see, which is never the full picture. On that wonderful note, Sandy, thank you so much for joining me today. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. That was Sandy Clark. He's a licensed counsellor. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.